expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The perpetrator of the terrorism is not a sociopath, strangely enough. They actually want to take out a symbolic target as a protest about something to do with the society that you hate. This week's podcast was recorded after the attack on an Orlando nightclub that killed 49 people. It was recorded before an attack on Istanbul's international airport that killed 41 others. Islamic militancy has been blamed in both cases, though it's too early to be sure in the case of Turkey. Suicide attacks aren't new, and unfortunately, they don't seem to be going away. This week on War College, we ask whether these killers are crazy, evil, or something else. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Jason Fields with Reuters. And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today, we're speaking with Roger Griffin. Griffin is an Oxford graduate and an Oxford Brookes University professor. He's an expert on fascism and the motivation behind terrorism, whose most recent book is Terrorist Creed, Fanatical Violence and the Human Need for Meaning. Welcome, Dr. Griffin. My pleasure. I think what makes most sense is to start off with a definition of terrorism. Can you just sort of give us your operating definition? Well, uh, there are many books trying to do this. Every definition is what's called an ideal type. In other words, there's no such thing as an objective definition. There are only useful definitions. And the definition I would push is the idea that it's a form of violent action designed to further a political cause. And what separates the, the violence from other uses of violence in conventional warfare is that the violence is directed towards a target which has symbolic value. It represents an enemy in the form of a doctrine or an ideology or society or a type of person. And the destruction of this symbolic target is meant to spread terror. In other words, it's meant to undermine the sense of existential security of the people who hear about the act of violence. Um, and therefore, in a way, the special feature of terrorism is that there is a triadic relationship between the perpetrator of the violence, the victim of the violence, the direct object of the violence, and the indirect object of the violence. And the indirect object of the violence is the spectator or third party who survives to be frightened. Now, this definition applies both to state terrorism, where the state attacks small groups symbolically in order to disarm, frighten, force into submission groups in society it disapproves of, or counter-state or anti-state violence, where people who hate the system but do not have an army, they're in a what's called a an asymmetrical situation of of power, of force of arms, use symbolic violence against targets 
which are relatively cheap and require little manpower to destroy, but have a disproportionate effect on the status quo or the government. Terrorism is an act of violence in a triadic relationship between perpetrator, victim and spectator, uh, which is designed to use symbolic violence to disturb, undermine, delegitimize, existentially uh, threaten a target audience. In the case of state violence, it's used against elements which are meant to be sub subversive or uh, hostile. And in the case of anti-state terrorists, it's used to make up for the absence of a full-scale army with which to take on the state. So there you are. That is not a short definition. But if, if readers can play that over time after time, they will eventually understand what it says. All right. Taking, taking that into consideration, then, what do you see is the difference between a mass shooter or a spree killer and a terrorist? Well, a spree killer who sits on top of a tower shooting people, if he's just a sociopath who has got some grudge against somebody and then takes it out by shooting innocent bystanders, but does not have any political or socio-political, ideological, religious agenda. In other words, he's not attacking Muslims or non-Muslims non or communists or whatever, but is just randomly killing people. That is not a terrorist act. It may cause terror, but that is not the purpose of the act. To be a terrorist, you have to have some sort of agenda. And the perpetrator of the terrorism is not a sociopath, strangely enough. It is somebody who has an ideological axe to grind, that they actually want to take out a symbolic target as a protest, if you're anti-state, about something to do with the society that you hate. Or if you're a state terrorist, you are using violence in order to uh, force into submission an entire category of people. But if you just pick up a gun and because you're pissed off and you, you start machine gunning people, you are not a terrorist. And if you want, your recent event in Orlando is a very good example of this. You see, uh, if that guy was live a, a neighbor who just basically hated living near a loud discotheque and just randomly went in and started killing people, he might have just lost it. But the fact that it was directed against gays and the fact that it was directed against gays within the framework, it seems, of a commitment to radical Islamic homophobia turns it into a symbolic act against gays and therefore a terrorist act. Well, so let me ask, are there cases where someone is already on the edge or deranged in some way that they then just claim the mantle of a particular ideology? Or does that just count? Does that count as uh, an ideological attack? Well, there you really need a lot of debriefing. And quite often these people are dead, so they're not very good at being debriefed. But if you're going to be pedantic... Uh, and I am. <laughs> yeah, and you had the, uh, had the ability to actually debrief somebody and really get to the bottom of why they've done what they've done, then it would be, there will be a grey area. There will be an area where somebody seems to have been pretty unhinged and lost and looking for some sort of purpose, but with already with great deal of anger 
inchoate, uh, undirected anger inside them or violent tendencies, which may have earlier just come out, come out in common criminality or vandalism. But what gives them a focus and a cause and a cause to actually die for or at least seriously mess up their lives for? Because um, it's it's very bad for your CV for a job, you know, to have been a terrorist. Um, is the idea of some sort of ideological mission at a deep level that may may be a rationalization of some sort of pathological violence. But I do think it's it is pretty clear that some people, uh, for example, in many of your homegrown mass killings in schools. Yeah, uh, I think you could do quite a good piece of research on how many of the people who went to school with a with an assault rifle or something and shot fellow students were actually making a symbolic gesture against the school system or against Western education or secular education or capitalism or something. And how many were just just lost it and were motivated by something far less uh, ideologically clarified. And therefore, if you like, uh, school killings would be a good now, it is possible that somebody who would carry out a school killing anyway, now that Islamophobia or radical Islam is in the air, may latch on to those to give to to dress it up a bit. And I'm not saying that that won't happen. But generally speaking, from my knowledge of, of violence, it's relatively straightforward to distinguish between an act of terrorism, which has an ideological symbolic dimension to it, and something which is much closer to gratuitous or nihilistic violence. Well, so when there's a suicidal element to it, someone, let's say, let's take a suicide bomber uh, somewhere in the Middle East. I mean, these are people who are not suicidal in the strictest sense. Or is, Am I right about that? Well, no, they're not at all suicidal. I mean, they're the opposite of suicidal. Uh, somebody who goes out taking out with him or her a symbolic enemy, uh, whether it's uh, Muslims or, or, or homosexuals or whatever, has actually given his or her death a purpose. Now, that is the opposite of straight suicide. Somebody throwing himself off the Golden Bridge in San Francisco, is that is an expression of profound despair, presumably. Yeah, But there's a very big difference between doing that and actually taking out or taking with you, as it were, some group that... Or, or representatives of a group that gives your death an element of martyrdom and uh, dying for a higher cause. And I do think that there really is a psychological difference between the two. Now, again, psychologists might come in and say, actually, um, suicidal missions really are probably more suicidal than they are missions. And I'm not saying, again, there isn't a grey area. But if we're dealing with what's called taxonomies, and you're asking me taxonomic questions. We have to start with the clear-cut cases and then move towards the grey area. If you just stay with the grey area, then rational discourse breaks down. It sounds like as we're ta- as we're kind of moving into this discussion of, of the suicides, that a lot of this is about people looking for meaning. Do you think that's accurate? That these, like the especially with the suicides, these are people that are trying to imbue their life with some sort of meaning before it ends? Well, for what it's worth, um, I'm one of a small group of people who some would consider scholars and others charlatans who have actually 
stuck their neck out and said what people are missing or many people are missing when trying to make sense of terrorism is the fact that from the point of view of the terrorist him or herself what they're doing is not as i say not nihilistic it's the opposite of nihilistic they are do some, doing something which which gives their life meaning and in fact in my book called terrorist's creed fanatical violence and the human need for meaning i actually go further than that and i actually claim that the terrorist who has a clear cut ideological sense of mission actually through that mission succeeds in sacralizing their existence in other words their existence which was previously empty and anomic and profane and empty suddenly becomes full and is experienced as sacred but not in a religious way i mean it may be a religious sacred but it could very easily be the sacrality that anybody gives anything which is supremely important to them so i think that uh, terrorism is a deeply anti-nihilistic act for the perpetrator and it's to be therefore distinguished from i would give an example the G- german pilot who was uh, treated for depression and who crashed crashed the plane with all the passengers in the french alps i don't think there's any evidence at all that he was making a symbolic gesture against some uh, perceived enemy i do think that in his state of suicidal depression he'd got to a point where perversely he not only didn't mind taking passengers out with him but he almost took a perverse pleasure in it but i i see see no evidence that he was sacralizing his own existence in his own mind as he crashed that plane into the mountainside and this was a german wings flight yeah the german wings flight 2014 i think yeah yeah and he was okay. actually ex- examined for depression he was uh pronounced depressed um dangerous suicidal thoughts and and i would say there you know you could do quite a lot in terms of case studies in contrasting that uh from mo- the terrorist the terrorist attacks where people get killed because that's a very very different psychological case so when you talk about sacralizing rather than necessarily having a direct religious belief Are you saying essentially that you don't even have to have a belief in some greater reward in an afterlife? It it's actually for people who commit acts like this it's it's actually about their current life? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, in my book, one of the great great American films that I quote uh, because I think it's it says more than a thousand books by Roger Griffin is Taxi Driver. Pascalsese with a, a magnificent De Niro. Now, I don't know if your listeners have seen the film recently, but if they have never seen it, they they are thoroughly advised to see the film and the commentary on the film on Google uh if you look up taxi driver analysis long before they read my book. And what what comes through very clearly in the analysis of the film is that the the central character feels completely lost he's come back from vietnamese war and his his life is totally empty and he manages to literally sacralize his life i mean one of one of the moments in the film which is really significant is where just before he actually goes off on this mission to kill the pimps who are exploiting a, a very young 13-year-old jody foster 
uh, he he it sounds trivial, but he lights the shoe polish that he's been using to oil his guns. And the analysis makes a point of the fact that this is a specific reference to a church candle. This is lighting a candle to the act which will kill him. But he will be dying in the name of a higher cause. And it's made extremely explicit in the film that the higher cause in this case is to clean up New York symbolically by killing some pimps. Now, he can't clean up all New York but he can give his own life meaning in the in the uh, microcosm by killing these people. And his life acquires a sacral significance, which it was completely lacking till he decides to become a vigilante. In, in that context, then, it sounds as if, tra- I think it's Travis Bickle is the name of the character. It, it sounds like he is in that gray area then, to me, based on what we were saying earlier. He's not he's not quite a terrorist, but he's not quite a mass shooter either. Or am I completely off base? He's a mass shooter, but he it's very clear. It's actually laced into the film, the fact. when I mean, it's, it's, it's very clever what Scorsese does, or I forget the, the script writer's name, but, it, I mean, he was very, very brilliant script writer, very lucid about it. it it's taken beyond the level of just sheer resentment or, or some just personal grievance, but being linked to the original attempt to kill a candidate for the presidency. But he, he, he doesn't dare go through with it because he's spotted by security, by CIA. So he doesn't go through with that. But why does he want to kill this candidate? Because it's made quite explicit, because he feels let down. He looks to the candidate, as he says in the taxi, to clean up the city. And the, when he's let down, feels let down by the candidate, he decides to kill him. And now at that level, it's sort of, uh, if you like, personal resentment. But there is already a, a deeper political motive in it because he really resents the system that allows this cesspit of New York to survive. And when he's frustrated in killing the politician, he then thinks up this, this second plan, plan B, which is to kill the pimps. Now, I think it's very clear that it's not full terrorism because it's not ideologically elaborated, but certainly the psychological mechanism of carrying out a mass shooting with a fund- actually a fundamentally moral point in mind. Just like I think, unfortunately, we have to accept that for some radical homophobes to kill gays is actually far more than a sort of petty uh, hatred. It is a sort of act of moral cleansing and we have to accept for the fact that at a psychological level some of the most awful acts in history like the holocaust for example have been generated by a perverse aim to clean up society by wiping out entire categories of people who are regarded as subhuman or filthy or or enemies to a higher level of being so actually Boy, I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole, but I could just ask, how do you differentiate when you're living through it between true opinion and the passions of the moment? I mean, it seems like almost any ideology that you're in the middle of, you may not be able to see how uh, how it'll be viewed later on. And I don't mean this as a moral whitewash. This is an honest question. It just seems so such a crazy thing for the people who are caught in the middle of it. 
Well, I'm not sure quite what you're getting at, but what I would say is that obviously if you're a victim of terrorists, then it's it's almost obscene to ascribe any idealism to it whatsoever. In fact, the, the, the Holocaust cast a very long shadow, and it was only in the last 20 years that anybody's been able to see through the fog to actually realize that Nazis were idealists and revolutionaries, and they, in their own minds, they were, they were cleaning up on a big scale. Uh, they were ridding the world of a whole group of evils. Now, to the extent that uh, the Gestapo and the, and the death camps were forms of state terror, I think there you see state terrorism at its most pure. Um, it's an ideologically driven attempt to clean up. But the, what makes it not terrorism in the way I'm using the term is that it's not symbolic violence. To try and wipe out every Jew is very different from having a, a few targeted, carefully selected acts of violence against a, a few high-ranking Jews, for example. Okay? So these words do alive and get all complicated. But I would say that the more you look at it, the, the more violence turns out not to be random or mad and does have a sort of rationale within it. And to the extent that you can find a rationale, which is more than just personal resentment or vengeance, then you're probably moving towards the area of terrorism. So maybe the answer is uh, simply if your belief system involves killing a lot of other people, it's probably not going to historically be a useful belief system. I don't know what a useful belief system is. All belief systems are useful because they stop us falling into the swimming pool, the black swimming pool of nihilism. So to that extent, all belief systems are just belief systems. That's called moral, <laughs> that's called moral relativism. But, but the point is, if we, what I'm trying to get at, let's not lose, lose the thread. Right. You've asked me about terrorism. We are obsessed in this, this world now with acts of violence against states or against uh, groups in, within civil society. So, so, uh, we're obsessed with ISIS and, and uh, Islamophobia, etc., etc. First point I'd like to make out is that far, far, far more thousands of people have been killed by state terror than by counter-state terrorism. Now, why do I make the distinction between terror and terrorism? Because I think you can have a, a terror state, which is not using violence symbolically. It just creates terror because of its, but almost as a side effect. I mean... If you try to wipe out all the Jews, you're not trying to terrorize them, you're trying to wipe them out. But if a, t if a state has limited genocidal resources, then it may just uh, do some high-profile acts of savagery against a few individuals. Yeah, And at that point, it's using terrorism as a weapon in order to have an, a, a ripple effect of fear on the people who hear about it. So that, for example... They leave. I mean, Idi Amin, for example, used terror against Ugandan Asians to actually make sure that Ugandan Asians all left. You see, now we should a therefore not forget that uh, terror is far more used by the states than uh, than than by individuals who are against the state. We mustn't forget that the actual word terrorism was invented by the Jacobin of the French Revolution. If we look at acts within civil society, I would say that pure terrorism, if there is such a thing, is always motivated by a sense of a higher cause for which it is worth breaking the taboo of both killing and dying. And that without that higher cause, then we're not, we, we're not dealing with terrorism. So it is for psychologists and 
investigators and criminal lawyers to actually take a particular case of violence and work out whether there's a terroristic dimension or not. But what it does mean is that to understand terrorism, it is no use looking at criminality or pathology. We have to look at the history of idealism and radical fanatical belief and see all the crimes committed against fellow human beings in the name of fanatical belief, because I think we're dealing with fanatical belief. And if there isn't some sort of fanatical belief there, we're not really dealing with terrorism. We may be dealing with contract killers or henchmen or whatever, or sad people with problems who, who want to somehow feel better within a cause. It's not straightforward pathology or criminality. We're dealing with a perverse effect that a certain fundamentalist belief system has on people's behavior, as Christianity has gloriously proved in its very long history. Fanatical forms of Christianity breed genocide, uh, religious wars, torture, systematic persecution of the other, whether it's women or homosexuals or Jews or whatever. So basically, people who s try to look for some sort of evil within Islam are really screwed up because they have to look at the capacity of any belief system, including communism and patriotism, etc., to actually breed dehumanizing violence against fellow human beings. So I think people are looking in the wrong place. Once you link terrorism to fanatical belief, you get out of a whole load of rather dubious debates, which actually paradoxically demonize terrorists, in other words, dehumanize them, and we can actually start looking at it under the microscope of reason, social and human sciences and take it out of the sort of hysterical mass media coverage that we tend to get in the Western world. Uh, speaking of hysterical mass media coverage that we get in the Western world, just in the past 24 hours or so, there's been a lot of uh, coverage of the Department of Justice's decision. They released the Orlando shooters 911 transcripts and initially had redacted any references to uh, Islamic State and Islam in it. They've, they've since changed course and not done that. And I was wondering what your thoughts on that, that initial decision are. Is that a good thing for a state to do in response to these kinds of shootings? Well, I really, I mean, I, I think that they're between a rock and a hard place, you see. I mean, you know, people like Obama are, are bending over backwards to not equate Islam with Islamism and radicalism and terrorism, okay? Uh, every time a radical Muslim commits acts of terrorism, it really spoils the narrative that there's no link between Islam and and, uh, and ISIS, for example. And the fact is that ISIS is a form of Islam. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's a form of apocalyptic Sunni Islam. And it's been, uh, you know, it's just incredibly, um, I mean, there is a very high dose of political correctness, which means that people are terrified of insulting Islam. And of course, there's a very strong fanatical Muslim movement endorsing that by saying, you know, that any mention of a link between Islam and Islamic terrorism is somehow a form of Islamophobia. And and, and uh, so, especially in America, I can understand the fact that, that any State Department statements, have, have they are on the side of caution. But I think it's massively misplaced. I mean, what what is needed is far greater understanding of 
but of course, it's impossible. I mean, by definition, mass media is superficial and 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 uh, cannot deal with complex issues. You know, if you started actually pointing out the fact that there are uh, forms of Christian fanaticism in America with some really scary views about all sorts of things, uh, and, and that historically Christianity has been one of the most lethal religions in the world in terms of body count, then you'd probably have an entire establishment back down on you. So in a way, all you can do is be superficial. I, I respect the fact that you're interviewing me, presumably, to move away from cliches, yeah? But I mean, I do think that the more uh, it is acknowledged that IS is a form of Islam, it's rooted in Islam, it's rooted in a certain reading of theological texts. It's backed up by certain types of uh, imam and priests and readings of hadith. And it's and I, I, I think the American mass media really should do more, but they're frightened, of course, to talk about uh, Sunni apocalypticism. Well, of course, if you say a word like apocalypticism, you've lost over half your audience anyway. But I do think there's a chance every time something like this happens to actually explain a bit more about, for example, what's happening in Pakistan and Bangladesh and the way Islamic countries tend to be, even at a state level, incredibly homophobic, that uh, liberals are being hacked to death in Bangladesh for being liberal bloggers. And when I say liberal, I don't mean secular liberal, I mean moderate Muslims. And we really should actually take the bull by the horn and realise that the, there isn't a world clash between liberalism and, and the free world and, and Islam, like Huntington said, but there is a clash between basically moderate uh, humanistic forms of religion and non-religion and fanatical forms of secularism and non-religion. I regard, sorry to, I, if I offend some of your listeners, I regard Trumpites on the fanatical end of the liberal spectrum and in their own way just as dangerous as religious fanatics. So the I do think the media, intellectual scholars, etc., have a duty to reintroduce ambivalence, complexity, tricky bits of history, debate into the way we deal with these things. Otherwise, we just end up with a sort of paranoia about ever linking Islam with anything nasty. And of course, what we have to do is link fanatical homophobic Islam with a an aspect of Islam which has its equivalent in in other religions throughout history and bring out of the woodwork all the moderate anti-homophobic Muslims of which there are many more and so we have a proper debate but of course that's too sophisticated for a a news system that is absolutely living in the moment all the time we've got to deal with these things in a grown-up way it's a very violent world a lot of people are having terrible lives so it's full of ideological religious tensions driven by some very really nasty political events in the Middle East for which the West is partly responsible, uh, including Britain. And we just have to uh, stop protecting our public and, and, and cotton wooling them by actually uh, trying to use events to inform the public better. To see them as a load of psychos without an ideology or a worldview or a mission is extremely dangerous because we underestimated Nazism and we should should not do the same with IS. Um, it may be inconvenient for M Muslims to feel constantly attacked just because people go on about uh, Islamic State. Well, they should grow up as well. You know, if I had 
if there was a, a, a radical British patriotic group a la Nazism that went, went around wanting to, to, to kill all Jews, I wouldn't feel offended in my Britishness if it was talked about as an offshoot of British patriotism. I mean, we really should just sort of all grow up a bit and talk about things, uh, call what we say in English, uh, call a spade a spade. Yeah. So, but of course, this is all nonsense. Uh, me st sitting here in Oxford, sort of uh, slagging off the media, etc. It's very, very difficult to be a journalist um, in the modern world because you're nearly always going to offend somebody. But you should always err on the side of the truth, and and uh, where you can smuggle in some complexity and a little bit of historical. Uh, tr record and truth it should be done and we really should not start trying to sort of redact history because we might offend somebody or create links in people's minds well i hope we actually succeeded in doing a little bit of that in this episode so i thank you very <laughs> much for being so patient i'm sure i sound just like uh, yet another blah 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 from the other side of the pond but i would beg that people look beyond the fear factor and the media hype and the horrible sense of shock and really start getting curious about what's going on under the surface, what generates hatred, what allows people to break taboos and do things. And also look, uh, it says in the Bible, to, to take the moat out of your own eye. I mean, just look at American or British or European history. It's not so long ago we were killing and burning and torturing in the name of a higher truth. It shouldn't be so mysterious that there are some Muslims keen to do that in a situation where Islam is being eroded by globalization and satellite dishes and iPhones and pornography. Roger Griffin, thank you so much. Thank you so much for talking to us. Yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to this week's show. You can reach us through our Twitter handle at war underscore college we appreciate your comments on soundcloud and in the itunes store as well war college is hosted by myself jason fields and matthew galt it was created by me and craig hedick and this week's episode was produced by bethel hapti whose hearing is so sharp only she can hear what i'm about to say next <laughs>